Hello and welcome to the third episode of the Meet the Investor podcast. This is Arteen Zahiri, and I am the co-host of this feature, along with Ramir Kashwani. Today we're speaking with Atin Batra, founder and solo general partner of 27 Ventures. 27 Ventures invest in global edtech and future-of-work startups at the pre-seed and seed stage. Perfect. Well, to kick things off, would love to uh, you know, hear you talk a bit more about 27V, a little bit about your investment philosophy and why in particular the focus on learning and labor. Cool. Um, thank you for asking. Um, I, so maybe, maybe a bit of backstory on myself first. I um, was actually an entrepreneur myself um, for a couple of years and failed at it spectacularly, as I always say. Um, but I learned a lot from that experience. And one of the, the key takeaways for me was that I loved entrepreneurship and I wanted to be around that more. Um, and I mean, I've, I've worked in corporates before. It was just, it's just never my vibe, essentially. Um, so just was looking for opportunities to be involved with the ecosystem. And the best thing that I could f- figure out was to actually be um, a supporter or an investor on the other side of the table. Um, and so that's what I did. I um, was the head of a corporate accelerator, which, which was my first gig as an investor, followed that up with working at another VC firm as an associate, then a principal. That firm was focused more on CDs A and B runs. Um, and then in 2019, I sort of started thinking about what I really wanted to do in the long run. So what did I want to do for the next decade or so? Um, and the clear answer was that I wanted to be a VC, definitely, but I wanted to be investing earlier stage. So I wanted to be investing at the pre-seed seed stage where I can really get my hands dirty and, and be really involved with the companies that we're investing in. And so I decided that the best way for me to do that would be to raise a fund of my own and actually just be more actively involved. Um, so that was the, the first step in that uh, journey of founding 27B. The second step was, what do I want to be investing in, right? Like that decision. Um, and I knew very, uh, very quickly, right, from, from day one that I wanted to be investing in education. And the side story on that education piece is that I've actually been involved with an educational nonprofit for the last 15 years. So my, um, my now wife, but then friend, actually had founded the nonprofit when she was in high school. Um, I joined the organization as just a participant and actually learned um, the way that you can make an impact to young adults' lives through that opportunity, just providing educational opportunities through that nonprofit. And so I've always had a passion for education. It's just that I never had the opportunity to make that my full-time job. And so in 2019, when I decided that I was going to start my own firm, it was the perfect opportunity for me to build my own job also in some ways. And so I knew that I wanted to be investing, but I also wanted to be investing in education. So that's how that whole thing began. And then the more I researched um, the landscape of of edtech in general back in 2019, um, it became clear that either you were investing in education in uh, 4K12, like school side, which basically means that you were going to be selling to institutions, to schools, which is a really tough business to be in, or you were building education for continuous work or continuous learning or, you know, that whole um, higher ed and then um, upskilling, reskilling piece, which then brought me to this whole idea that education was really overlapping the future of work. And that's what it was going to be for the long run. And so that's how I actually modified my thesis from being just education to actually being education and future of work. So that's the confluence of like all of the decisions, variables that I had to, to look at when I founded the firm in 2019. But that's the, 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 the final construct of 27B is this. So 27B is a global investor investing at pre-seed and seed stage in education and future of work companies. 
We invest on average right now about $150,000 and are usually the first check in the company. Uh, we're actively involved. I spend more than 50% of my time every single week on just working with our portfolio companies. We are currently at 24 companies. 18 of them are in North America. The remaining six are actually spread across Europe and APAC. Sorry, did I cover all of your questions? I know that was a, a, a broad piece there, but I don't know if yes. I missed anything. No, you did an amazing okay, insight. Good. Thank you. Um, and one thing I actually wanted to ask about that you obviously have brought up, you know, you're a global ambassador, um, you know, 24 investments spread out all across the globe. And obviously your personal background has been very international as well, you know, with upbringing in, in India now being based in Hong Kong. Just this is kind of a two-part question. I guess the first part is, how have you become over the years so, I guess, globally connected? And then secondly, how is 27V set up uh, structurally, the fund structure, in that you're able to make all these investments in, in different areas of the world? Right. I'll answer the second one because it's easier first. Um, this is where I came in Ireland's offshore fund, um, which makes it easier when we're investing internationally. Honestly, even Delaware funds these days, which are the, the second most common um, fund structure, is perfectly fine and easy to invest. I think the, the bigger concern um, from a legal standpoint when investing internationally is the local jurisdictions of each of these companies that you're investing in and how you do uh, purchase documents and, and shareholder documents in those individual jurisdictions. The best way to resolve that is to just use uh, Delaware C Corps for almost everybody that you're investing in, even if it's an international company. Most companies would usually have a Delaware C Corp as their holding entities and then local operating entities. And so when you're actually... As a startup, when you're issuing shares, you issue shares in the Delaware C Corp because jurisdictionally and legally, that's just an easier um, structure for investors to be familiar with. And they can go um, and invest that in that fairly quickly because they don't have to do a lot of legal diligence. Whereas if you were investing, for example, in a UK company or a, or a Taiwanese company or whatever, you'd have to do a lot more legal diligence, which causes some kind of hesitation for um for the investor. So frankly, if, if any founders are listening to this, my advice is definitely have an operating company of your own, but always build a holding company in Delaware C Corp so that it's easier to attract investment from US, but also just global investors in general. Um, to your first question, how did I build a, a global um, network? Frankly, it was just, um, it was part of my job. Uh, at the very, very first time when I, when I started working as an investor, I was, I was leading the accelerator and the accelerator, um, the mandate was to bring international companies to Hong Kong so that they could actually help the, um, the conglomerate that I was working on for, for, for that accelerator. And so part of my job was to just build relationships anywhere in the world with other accelerators, with other universities, early stage enough so that we could then attract those companies to actually come to Hong Kong, be a part of the program, and then develop um, their base here in Hong Kong. And so that just became... Um, you know, sort of one of the prerequisites of my job. And then I was able to double down on that at my at the VC firm that I worked with after that, because that firm was focused on investing, again, globally, with an eye on bringing those companies to actually do manufacturing in Asia. So once again, my job was to try and source companies from Israel, from the UK, from the US, and find ways, find people who were willing to sort of... Um, uh, manufacturing in, in Asia, which frankly is not very different. Right? Like, I mean, the hardware companies, most manufacturing is happening in Asia in any case. The last thing that I would say, I and mean, this was very um, tactical, but I think the last thing I would say is in terms of just building a network, 
I always say this to people, if you're a nice person, just be nice, be helpful, be valuable. You know, as long as you're helping other people, they'll help you back and then you're able to build relationships. And I think that was just crucial for me having, you know, all of these um, connections in, in different ecosystems of just being nice, being helpful over a couple of years, you know, it compounds over time. Um, and now I've got friends in basically any city that I want to go to. And I know who I can reach out to, to find, you know, that node and that ecosystem there. So, yeah. No, that's, um, no, that was a really, uh, that was a really, uh, good answer. I like the way you're very, um, you know, uh, structured and precise in the way you answer these questions, sure. which is good. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit more about what you touched on earlier when we talked about like the fund structure and stuff. Um, I want to know, like, do you have, like, when you structure investments, like, and, and, and when you do funds, like, what kind of notes are you investing in? Like, is it convertible or do you just do like common or preferred? And then also curious to know if like you have explored like the SPV model, if that's something that you do a lot, or is that you, if you recommend that to founders, et cetera, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. Uh, well, so the first thing is investors always, always invest in preferred shares, not common, right? Like, I mean, right. common shares is... Um, reserved for founders, employees, and maybe, maybe, just maybe for, you know, accelerators, like a, a VC or 500 would probably take some common shares. But essentially, if you're a financial investor with a blind pool fund, you'd most likely be investing, not most likely, 99.99% you'd be investing in a preferred share. So that's just what it is. Um, so that's the first thing to that. Um, from a structural perspective, um, or from a um, documentation perspective, I'm open to investing in most any document. We've done um, post-money saves, we've done pre-money saves, we've done convertible notes and equities. Um, I would say that I have a preference to equity um, uh, structures. And so one of the things that we're working on now, actually, with, a, with our legal partner is building a standard equity transaction document set that we can then just offer to companies right up front with the idea that we'd be leading. And if we are leading, then we're able to actually make some of these demands. But essentially, if we're leading around, um, we'd basically be offering those um, template documents as our starting point with very little scope for negotiation. The idea of doing that is, is not so much to, to bully the startup, but actually just to make it easier for them to close the document, to just close the round. Usually people prefer um, saves and convertible notes because of the this perception that it'll be faster and cheaper from a legal cost and time perspective. But frankly, it it may be it's almost like you're punting a can down the road. Right? It's faster and cheaper today, but it'll actually be much more complicated and much more expensive later. So, in my opinion, it's just better that we do this right. Um, you know, do this correctly. Maybe correctly is not the right word, but just do this properly right from day one. And so. Um, we've got this legal partner that we're working with specifically, and we're going to get those documents made. And the idea would be that essentially that only costs less than $10,000 for a company to get uh, diligence done on the, on the legal side, on their own side, which is probably about the same amount that you would spend if you were doing a safe or a convertible note for a pre-seed round of about a million bucks or less. Um, and then we'd pay our own legal fees. I think that's the other aspect of doing an equity round is a lot of investors will usually add to the term sheet that their legal fees, as in my legal fees, will be paid by the startup, which I just think is is ridiculous. I mean, I'm giving you $100,000 and I'm telling you to give me back 25, which makes no bloody sense to me. Um, and it's certainly not founder friendly. I'm like, how do you claim to be founder friendly if that's what you're doing? So um, the way that we're setting this up for ourselves is that we pay our own legal fees. In fact, even the the, the 
three lead investments that we've done to date, we've never asked the companies to pay our legal fees. They paid their own, we paid our own. And going forward, this will be a standard practice for us. Now that we're doing more lead investments, we want to make a template out of that. So the template will be, we pay our own legal fees, you pay our own legal fees. We've got a template, you can do all your diligence on it and it should only cost you less than $10,000 on your side. Um, so that's a structural aspect. And then the last question you were asked was around SPVs. Um, we do SPVs specifically for doing follow-on rounds where we've internally reached the maximum allocation within the fund. Um, so with every fund, I don't know how many founders know this, but with every fund, there's, a, there's usually a limit, a percentage of the fund that you can invest in a single company. And for example, with me, like if I'm following on regularly into a company, I usually hit that mark within like two or three investments. At that point, two or three rounds of investments in a single company. At that point, the only way for me to increase my ownership is to do an SPV. And so that's what we do. We find um, once our companies hit maybe a Series A, um, we start to look for SPVs. We, we create SPVs looking for either our existing LPs or maybe other investors to bring on board um, so that we can lever up in terms of the, the amount of money that we're investing. For the, for the founder, it's actually pretty easy because it's the same single legal entity on their cap table and it's completely controlled by us as the fund. So they don't have to you know, talk to any of the 10, 15, 20 folks that we've raised money from. They're still only uh, having conversations with us and we uh, continue to be the, the decision maker on that particular legal entity. So it's just easy from an operational standpoint for the founder. And uh, do you guys have like a syndicate where you like source um, investment into like SPV from or? How do you yeah, no, it? I don't do the AngelList syndicates. I focus on my own network. Um, it's just easier and faster to move if I have those established relationships. And then the, the other thing that we do is because we know that a lot of our companies will start to hit this Series A milestone in the next call it year or two years. Um, I've actually got a regular update mechanism with the folks in our network where we constantly tell them about the company so that when that opportunity arises, instead of those investors spending you know, two months on diligence, we're just easily able to go through all of the diligence and the, and the legal structure process fairly quickly so that we can close. And, and it's, not a, it's not a burden on the founder from a time perspective. Got it. Yeah. So you pretty, yeah, so you pretty much manage the process yourself. You just kind of do it offline, which Everything. is um, yeah. right, really. that's the best way to cut out the middleman. Um, no, I mean, I, th I, I think there's a, I think there's a place in the market for the AngelList syndicate. I think that's great. Like we've had uh, a number of our portfolio companies raise AngelList syndicate money. Um, there's usually a champion, like some one single angel investor or, or super angel investor who's got, who's got skin in the game themselves and then is actually raising uh, from their network or using AngelList as a way to source. I think that's absolutely fine. And that makes sense. Um, but I also feel like that's maybe the structure of someone who's a part-time investor or someone who's trying to be an investor and this is their way of building a track record. It makes sense for them. But now that we have a proper established um, fund and, and this is meant to be a franchisee, we're just about to launch fund two, like it, it, it doesn't make sense for us to actually um, do those kinds of structures using AngelList, which is much more um, ad hoc than uh, you know building a long-term relationship. Got it. No, I, th I think that's pretty insightful. Um, uh, I think um, I definitely am curious to know how you uh, kind of like focusing on the early stage, right? Especially being the first check-in, 
you're probably investing in companies that don't really have any track record, right? Like, so you're pretty much investing on an idea and like on an individual or on a team. And, you know, uh, there are a lot of ways to kind of, um, you know, think about people when you meet them and like how, whether or not, like you think they're basically going to build like a company or they're going to build a team yeah. that can scale. Um, so we're definitely just here. We'd love to hear about how you kind of think about that and like the questions that you ask or like the kind of things that you like to suss out in people when you, when you meet them. Yeah, there are uh, broadly, I'd say there are three things that I'm looking for. One, and I elaborate on, on all of them, but I'll just list them out first. The first thing is, would I want to work with or for this person for the next like 20 years? Um, because essentially what we're doing when we're investing in a company is that we're going to be investing for the next 10, 12 years before you exit. Even more so at a pre-seed stage because then the timelines are even longer. Um, so that's the first thing that I'm asked, that I'm trying to gauge is do I want to work with this person or for this person? Essentially, you're, I mean, if you think about it from a servant leadership perspective as an investor, you're working for the other person, not really uh, the other way around. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, um, is this person actually a builder? Has he, she actually built projects, companies, communities, um, businesses in the past? Um, because you really want that, that building mindset. Um, so that's the second thing that we're looking for. And then the third thing is, um, have they actually failed? And what did they learn from that? So those are the three big things that I'm trying to gauge from a character personality perspective. I mean, there's a business aspect, which is to come afterwards. I think the first thing for me to understand is those three things. So the way that I structure my first calls with everybody, um, and most people laugh when I say this, but the way that I structure my first calls is I always call it like, what's your origin story? Like you're a superhero, right? You're building this company, you're the superhero, but what's your origin story? What happened in your past that led you to this point? And so that's what we're trying to understand. And that question usually encompasses what did you build in the past? Um, what did you fail or not fail? You know, what did you learn from that? And then going back to what I said at the very beginning, like, is this person that I want to work with uh, in the long run? So from a, like, again, from a personality standpoint, like those are the three things that I'm looking for. And then from a business standpoint, like you could always, I mean, as a cliche, it's tough. The, um, does this person have experience in the industry? Does this person um, have an understanding of the customer? Um, and then the third, does this person actually truly understand financial unit economics? Because I think you can be a technical co-founder or founder or CEO, even like you can be a technical person who's a CEO, but if you don't understand unit economics, you're just going to completely fail. Uh, like there's no way for you to run this business if you don't understand the the math of what goes in and what comes out. Um, and I think that's one of the um, the mistakes that a lot of people make. And it's not like you have to be like an expert at modeling. You can always hire someone to model it for you, but you have to understand the the basic principles of it. And I think that's what uh, not everybody's good at. So sometimes we're just trying to gauge for that. Awesome. Appreciate you sharing that. Uh your insight, your criteria there. I think you've given some very invaluable food for thought for founders listening to this as well as investors, um, investors too. Uh, now you mentioned that you spend um, a little over 50% of your time working with your you know, existing portfolio yeah. companies. Um, so that obviously uh, very aligns exactly with what you just said, that overall philosophy, the way you're thinking about it. Um, and you know, we've, we've written an article on, on Fiveable, for example, one of your portfolio companies. So we're, we're very you know, well aware of the, of the quality that that you've, um, you know, the standard that you have for your port codes. With the last few minutes here, um, I think it would be great. You know, we'd, we'd love to shine a spotlight on some of these 
existing port codes that you've invested in that you know you're spending a lot of time in that you foresee being able to work for them for for decades what are some interesting companies that you'd like to you know give a shout out to interesting founders um, stories that you want to share to our audience oh man you're putting them in a tough stop a uh, tough spot um <laughs> it's always going to be difficult to pick one or two um the first thing i guess i would say is go to my website and see the list of the entire portfolio right that's the first thing so it's so go do that now that i've caveated with that um I think the companies that are super interesting that um, folks would love to to look at, and and I'm thinking just purely from a consumer standpoint. Um, if you're interested in language learning, you should definitely look at Fluent, Fluent.co. Um, they're a browser extension that essentially replaces English words um, in whatever text you're reading into French, Italian, or Spanish, depending on the language that you're learning. So the idea is it's completely embedded learning. Um, and it's it's immersive in the sense that you're reading your emails or you're reading Facebook, Twitter, Bloomberg even, and it's forcing you to rehearse and practice your language skills right there throughout the day. And so it, it, it also speaks to one of our, our core thesis, uh, micro thesis under education is just how do we build educational experiences that are immersive and engaging? So that's like one example, uh, fluent.co. Uh, if you're a high school student um, who's reading this or listening to this or watching this, um, look up edgy learning, E-D-G-I learning.com. Edgy learning is actually building quests, um, educational quests um, for high school students so that you can actually learn about content pieces that are outside of your curriculum. And so the idea is, for example, if you want to learn about what caused the, um, the milk food um, uh, the milk um, uh, formula shortage right now, they've got a quest going on, which is actually encouraging you to research and then build a piece of content that proves that you've understood the concept. So the idea is that through this deliverable, just as you work towards this deliverable of either it's a video or, a, um, or an infographic or an article, all the research that you're doing on this topic, it actually just exposes you to so many more um, ideas and 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 um, uh, new sources in the world, and so you're thinking about these topics that otherwise you wouldn't think about in school. So it's uh, you know why did the Ukraine war happen? Um, uh, what's the why the, the the shortage of semiconductors? Why the shortage of milk milk formula? In fact, there was a um, a quest that they did. I think it was last week or the week before, which was about um, how there's a shortage in sand and how that's affecting construction globally. And now when you think about that, like there's, it's very, very strange. Like, why is that happening? But there is a very clear line. And so one of their students actually built a whole uh, video showing how sand is leading to construction shortage and, and all of that. So there's a, um, if you're a high school student, I think you're looking for ways to open up your mind and then explore and, and find new things to talk about. I think instead of just, you know, fractions, decimals and, uh, and whatnot. So uh, that's the best way to do it is edulearning.com. Amazing. Fantastic ventures for sure. And just to reiterate, everyone listening, go to 27v.vc slash portfolio so you can yep. learn about all the other amazing uh, companies in your family as well. Um, maybe you could just like, like leave the audience with just like one more thing, um, you know, like uh, final words and then we can wrap it from there. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Whenever you ask final words, you always try and make them... Um, really heavy or philosophical i think the <laughs> the only thing that i the only thing that i think about when i keep saying this to um, to my family and to my son is is just to be um curious you know i always say that 
Um, you build companies because you're curious, you want to learn more about um, the space that you're working in. As an investor, the only thing that's keeping me alive in this, in, in this industry now, what, eight years later, is the fact that I'm just curious about every new business that crosses my desk. I want to learn more about what they're doing or learn more, more about the origin story of the founders. So I think like in my mind, that's the single most important quality that any individual can have is just be curious and want to learn and that's it. So um, I know that sounds old sagey, but I'm not old, but I'll just leave you with that um, advice, I guess. I think it's in the spirit of the fun, right? Continuous learning. Yeah, 100%. That's uh, yeah. Lifelong learners.